when you study in inpatient metabolic wards, controlling for all the appropriate variables, isocalorically, same amount of calories, same subjects, double blind, placebo controlled, all that, especially keying in on inpatient studies where it's not self-reported, a lower fat diet always beats a low carb diet. People feel better. They lose more body fat. Their metabolism holds up better. Lean body mass holds up better. Welcome back. It has been a while since we've done these, but very happy to jump in and to have found something that I think is, it, I, I'm just thrilled that I think it's it's the best way to segue back into a meaningful series. So I'm going to do uh, kind of a double duty here because for those who aren't familiar, or at least as a chance to re-explain the exact format, why I do exactly what I do here, uh, I want to I show exactly the kind of research review that I'm going to do. And I just remember something I probably did wrong. So my producer will yell at me. I think I used the wrong template. So the actual video box will cover some of the slide on the playback. If you guys are watching this on the playback and our video boxes, avatars are in the way of some of the text, I apologize. I will have to make sure I got the right one next time. But just in terms of my premise in doing this, it's almost like a YouTube unboxing video. Uh, I am going to dive as deeply as I can, but by no means am I picking studies and exhaustively picking apart every single aspect. Uh, I have enough working knowledge of the content, the material, the subject matter that I'm going to try and piece some things together in a, in a superficial way that an academic might. But I'm going to explain my relationship with health research and how I view that in terms of your relationship with me and health research. Uh, I am not a researcher. I have two doctorates, four master's degrees. So I have a lot of experience consuming research. Every doctoral dissertation or thesis I have done has been more in the realm of, of uh, uh, research reviews, analytics, um, kind of meta-analyses type things, literature reviews. So I have never gone into epidemiological study, experimental study design personally. Uh, our company is involved in a couple survey type studies with the university. So I, like you, am more of a consumer. I'm not digging in and, and consuming tons of research, or I should say, you know, conducting research. Um, so you and I are more alike than not in that regard, but I do have the experience of having done this for 25 or 30 years. So I want to show you, I want to take the time to go through this particular study to really dig into what we want on the subject matter. But I'm also going to show you what I'm looking for in a study and why I think that could be helpful to you. So today we're going to start a series, the science of diet efficacy. You know, what, how do we even determine if a diet method is useful? Is it helpful? How does it compare to others? How do we study that? What are the different ways to study that? So the, the, the place that I looked, and this is what made me a little bit giddy, in that this was the perfect study as an intro to this subject, because I did want to cover, you know, the, the kind of layering that we can get into looking at a study. So, so first of all, look at this particular um, title, Scientific Evidence of Diets for Weight Loss. 
in then colon different macronutrient composition, intermittent fasting and popular diets. When I first read this and I'm giving you kind of my purview, the box opening survey as a, as a YouTube video, um, like, wait a second, that's, those are a bunch of things that aren't related macronutrient composition, you know, different levels, different ratios of macro distribution, intermittent fasting is more of a process, not a, you know, what's the diet methodology entailing in terms of energy balance and then popular diets that seems pretty broad. So the first thing I had to do in deciding, is this a study that I want to present to you? Will it have any value or would I even want to read it? Like, is this like, what does this study even mean? So the first thing I had to do is kind of pick apart some of these components. And, and this is the way I did it. First, I looked and saw, okay, this is from a reputable journal, Nutrition. Uh, it's pretty current. So not that that's good or bad. You know, some very classic studies were pioneering and profound and foundational. But I thought, okay, this is a, this is a, at least it kind of wakes me up to think, oh, maybe there's something new here. Uh, I, I immediately noticed that there was just one author, which is very strange. Um, so I, I thought, okay, that's a clue that this may be like a doctoral dissertation. Somebody did this, authored it, and this is my submission. If, if not, uh, there would usually be more people, more people collaborate. Um, but the other side of that coin is if it was something that was purely student-led and academic, uh, you know, there would actually at least be an advisor or somebody listed. So then I looked the author up and I saw that she has conducted uh, or has been named in 17 total studies since around 2015. I also see that she works in the Department of Pediatrics at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School, and I looked at uh, the department, Mucosal Immunology and Biology Research Center and Center for Celiac Research and Treatment, and especially Department of Pediatrics. So then I thought, okay, wait a second. This is somebody who does work in intestinal health. Mucosal lining has to do with absorption, dietary type stuff. Um, pediatrics specifically, that's a very nuanced group. So I thought, well, maybe this isn't a study that's going to give us anything you know, because that seems pretty nuanced in a couple of different directions. But I at least went ahead and, and looking at those specific citations that she's involved in. Indeed, I did see that most of them were at a very uh, subatomical digestive level. You know, she's looking at malabsorption, absorption through the, the intestine wall and so forth. Uh, but there were also maybe three or four studies that were just on diet in general, which of course there would be some overlap. If you're studying the digestive system and so forth, you it, obviously that's, that's an organ that deals with nutrition. So kind of a mixed bag so far as I was looking at this stuff, I, you know, that was my first purview. Uh, I, I just kind of dug into the study, started skimming it. And I thought there was some real merit for a couple of reasons and I'm going to explain my impression of the limitations as well as what I think were, were really good uh, things to, to kind of conclude from this. So first of all, let me just read the paragraph abstract. 
new dietary strategies have been created to treat overweight and obesity and have become popular and widely adopted. Nonetheless, they are mainly based on personal impressions and reports published in books and magazines rather than scientific evidence. Not really true. <laughs> um, and this is why it, it kind of pulls me back and forth between I think this being somebody who's young in her career. I, I mean, obviously, um, but, that, you know, I don't bias somebody for that as as a negative. It's just, you know, I, I need to know that, be, you know, going in. There's going to be a limited amount of perhaps uh, experience here uh, because there is a shitload of research in this area. But I know what she means that most people, most general layman type consumer, our impressions are based on diets and fads in terms of books and so forth, not research. Uh, animal models and, and human clinical trials have been employed to study changes to body composition and metabolic outcomes to determine the most effective diet. However, the studies present many limitations that should be carefully analyzed. No argument there, especially individually. That's why collectively we need to have a good working knowledge of what's actually been studied. The aim of this review was to discuss the scientific evidence of three categories of diets for weight loss. So that's where I realized, okay, that's what she's doing with those three uh, pretty non-related subjects. There is no one most effective diet to promote weight loss. In the short term, high protein, low carbohydrate diets and intermittent fasting are suggested to promote greater weight loss and could be adopted as a jumpstart. However, owning to adverse effects, caution is required. In the long term, current evidence indicates that different diets promoted similar weight loss and adherence to diets will predict their success. That's going to be important. Adherence is what predicts their success, no matter what content or process. Finally, it is, a, it is fundamental to adopt a diet that creates a negative energy balance and focus on good health quality to promote health. So I think just in this abstract, she kind of lays her cards on the table, um, importantly, as it should in abstract, but also a little bit subconsciously, it, it shows us who she really is. Uh, I do see in these phrases and just what she chooses to address uh, you know, a little bit of a novice researcher. Uh, she is, by the way, on that previous slide, she is a research fellow. So that kind of solved that mystery. Like, what does she really do? Who is she? So somebody like that isn't a professor um, in a university or medical system, but they help academics with those research um, sub uh, subjects, projects, that kind of thing. So, you know, she may be working with graduate students on certain things, doing research for the university, the medical system, uh, you know, as their own entities, uh, which, which is great. I mean, if, if you're going to be a lifelong researcher, eventually you're going to know all of the research. I still just, even through reading this, get the, um, just, just get the perspective that, that she's still pretty limited. And I think she kind of shows her biases here, which we all have, me included. I'll show you some of mine as I go through this. I, I marked this up a little bit differently than I normally would because I, I do, again, want to use this jumping off point into our new season, so to speak, post-summer, to really go over how we're going to analyze research uh, in, in our Science of series. So what I mean by that is th there's no reason she even collected these three categories, uh, macronutrient diversity, intermittent fasting. And then I think she called it like specialized diets or something. Um, you, you'll see that here in a little bit. It's like, well, what, you know, like what, what do those mean? Like, why are those different things? I, 
I understand macronutrient distribution because here she's going to talk about low carb, high carb, low fat, et cetera. Intermittent fasting, I think may have been better touted as just meal spacing or, um, you know, meal timing, something like that. So because intermittent fasting is a little bit more of, of a current lifestyle trend, popular term. It's not necessarily, um, you know, a research category. And then, uh, you know, the, the third category, she talks about diets that completely um, get rid of an entire food or food group, like a vegetarian diet gets rid of animal protein. Uh, Mediterranean diet, you know, does something uh, else, but there's a lot of cross mixing that you could say, well, that should be in this category. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. But anyway, uh, it was just a little bit convoluted. And at the same time, she goes through some really good information as almost a survey study. The reason I really liked it, I'm going to point this out to you, is in her, you know, I may call youthfulness or novice, perhaps in this particular field, because again, she's not necessarily spending her entire career looking at just diet for these reasons. She's clearly working on the cellular level of, of nutrition. Um, glad you joined us, Andrea. I'm going to mute you there. Uh, and then I think as she goes along, you'll see that she treats this almost as somebody kind of exploring herself. So here's, here's something that she describes as this model. Uh, we classified these, these strategies into three main categories, diets based on the manipulation of macronutrients, uh, low fat, high protein, low carb, Again, could have could have had some more nuance in that. That is based on the restriction of specific food groups. So she went gluten free, which is odd. Um, looking at diet specifically, again, if you're going to go that detailed, there is a myriad amount of super specialized. But then looking at vegetarian and Mediterranean and paleo um, to pick just those three out, and then she includes a couple more later. And then, of course, uh, she, she does she does talk here, even though it wasn't the title, about the manipulation of timing. And, and, and again, I think it's just a little bit misleading to use intermittent fasting in the title when down here, I think she she cleaned that up just a little bit. Again, no, no complaints or no hits on her. It just makes me feel like she doesn't study this particular field as her primary career. And looking at her CV, you know, I think that's that's indicated. But here are the things that I really like that she did. There's a very, very fresh way that she engineered even the narrative of the study and the way she supported it with graphics. And this is just kind of a 2022 thing. Uh, and I hope more people do this. So as just an easy to understand, this almost looks like an app, right? With these icons. She created a an XY axis in this beginning graphic showing that each of these diets that she looked at by name, Atkins, ketogenic diet, even though you guys know from our research reviews, there are many forms of keto. She just lists keto here. Another little bit of a nuanced flaw, I think. Zone, Ornish, paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean. Then, uh, you know, down the, uh, the other side, she's just kind of looking at, you know, what you can eat or should eat or, or you don't get on those diets. So that creates that little icon-driven easy to look at at a glance thing, which, which I think has some value. Uh, it makes me think that even though this is published in a journal, 
she has kind of a clinical mindset. She's, she's, she wants this to be easily understood, which I think is, is great for people like us who may stumble across this, or maybe even a journalist, you know, think of how many times a study is released and it gets picked up in these news feeds. And all of a sudden, every news agency is just kind of taking the headline and then using it as clickbait with like, hey, here's this thing I saw, here's the conclusion. And I hope this kind of outlay of information is easier to give lay people a more credible uh, understanding. So now let's, let's look at the three actual categories. So the first study design set is where she was looking at popular diets based on their manipulation of, of macro content. So Atkins, which she does differentiate Atkins from keto in that Atkins does allow for some protein. So she's including that as kind of a, a viewpoint of keto. But I think if she was really current with all that's happening in this space, uh, she would call that modified keto. Uh, she might call, you know, there are two or three different ways. Now we're looking at modified keto, high protein keto, that kind of thing. Um, maybe she's just looking at kind of the trade names that the general population would be familiar with. But you can see across here, she's she's looking at some of the things that you and I have gone through ad nauseum in the last two years, which is low carb, low fat, those kind of things. Uh, together through our research reviews, we have looked at all of the impacts metabolically, hormonally, long-term studies, inpatient studies, every way you can parse this out in carbs versus no carbs, fat versus low fat, et cetera. You guys have all these answers, or at least we've been through that in there in our database, you could easily go look up. So that's going to be a little bit of a review for you. But it's, it's going to be interesting, I hope, in how she presents it in, in the outcomes. So here's another one of those things that I was impressed with. Uh, even in her understanding and layout of this study, she did understand enough to make some very current, well-articulated claims. So, for example, I think she had, let me see here. Um, let me skip down because I think this is always important. I usually try and give you guys this number. She had 157 citations in this study total. So even though it's not a complete meta-analysis, I don't think of any sort, um, she did try to go through a, as deep of a survey in the area she decided to study or review. You know, I think she did that very well. But this particular line, moreover, an important meta-analysis of 32 control studies concluded that energy expenditure and fat loss were more significant with low-fat diets compared with isocaloric, low-carb diets. You guys know that. You guys know that's why I'm not a fan of keto, that kind of thing. When you study in inpatient metabolic wards, controlling for all the appropriate variables, isocalorically, same amount of calories, same subjects, double-blind, placebo-controlled, all that, especially keying in on inpatient studies where it's not self-reported, a lower fat diet always beats a low carb diet. People feel better. They lose more body fat. Their metabolism holds up better. Lean body mass holds up better. So for her, who I'm perceiving as somebody who this is not her primary interest of study, she found that and she put it in here. And I thought that, that that's one of the tipping points that made me say, oh, okay, this study is worthwhile. 
here's somebody who at least has that depth of knowledge. The reason I bring that up, I mean, me included, I have my biases, you have your experiences and biases. And with the myriad study opportunities that are out there for us to consume, it's pretty tough to be skeptical when somebody else has done the research and they probably know more than we do. Even when I look at studies like this and these people do research for a living, there are things I have believed because I think, well, there's the study. It looks good to me. And then only when you look at everything in context and pick apart the flaws of a study, do you realize like, oh yeah, that's why when there are contradictions, this is the one that probably is wrong. This is the one that hasn't been replicated. This is, these were the fatal design flaws. So anyway, I just thought that was interesting that she was, she was seeming to pick out some of the most nuanced and current things. Uh, another cool graphic and you know, here she is sh showing the different individual diets that she was comparing and just another cool, like sliding bar graph that these have this much protein, this much fat, this much carbohydrates. Um, it, it is funny to me. It almost makes me think that we, we need an update on, on who is creating lasting diet methodologies. Like when you see the Ornish diet still being the kind of keystone, higher carb, lower fat diet. I mean, gosh, was that in the seventies, maybe even the sixties? Um, the zone diet uh, was such a fad for a while and kind of has its own category because it's quote balanced 30, 40, 30. Uh, Atkins will probably always just be the classic keto minded person, except that again, I think it's a very, very good pickup on this researcher's part to say, well, Atkins isn't necessarily keto because he does involve, you know, a, a good amount of protein. That's not classic keto. Keto is about 90% fat. Um, you, you'll, you'll recognize paleo and Mediterranean, which I'm glad they appear because every single study really shows that these are probably two of the closest way. If you had to pick one diet methodology to say, well, if I'm not going to do a lot of thinking, I'm not going to engage a lot of flexible dieting. I'm just going to kind of pick a horse and ride it. These are the two that work the best and I'll explain why. And, and she, she kind of concludes that as well, but let me, let, let me get through some of these details uh, on, on just how the study worked or her review. So another thing that she said here, finally, individuals with insulin resistance, glucose intolerance, or both may benefit from a low carb diet. Although this has not been confirmed in a recent study with 609 individuals, and there are more studies than that. What she's saying is when we even look at diabetes research, classically, everybody says, oh man, if you've got high blood sugar, you've got type two diabetes, uh, you, you, you've got to just drop your carbs. And even with insulin dependent type one diabetics, we know that keeping carbs in high quality, low glycemic, healthy, whole food carbs is better with a low fat diet instead of the inverse. If you have diabetes and you think, oh man, the Atkins diet is for me because it's low carb. No, research is now conclusive that your blood sugar will be better controlled if you keep your fat lower, low to moderate, and you still allow a good amount of carbs that you can effectively process. So again, another 
check in the, the column for this researcher in terms of me being able to, you know, say this, this is pretty credible, you know, even as kind of a, a light superficial view of this topic, she really, you know, is, as I went through the, the, the her paper, you know, a little bit more credible than I may have initially given her credit for. So let, let me get into uh, another way that I like her narrative of the study. As I put it to the top of this conclusion, number one, uh, along the way, as she's just describing this, it's a little bit better narrative form than some studies because she's, she's a, she's reviewing and explaining as she goes. So once she looked at this, this top bucket of analysis, macronutrient distribution, high carb, low carb, high fat, low fat, before she gets to the end of the entire review, she does a little summary before she goes to the next section. So in conclusion, in the short term, high protein, low carb diets are suggested to present benefits for weight loss. However, Owing to their major effects on metabolism and gut health, they should be considered as a jumpstart weight loss tool rather than a diet for life. In the long term, current evidence indicates that a different ratio of macronutrients associated with caloric restriction in healthy diets promotes similar weight loss. And they're actually um, more, more, um, you know, just long-term successful. They, they are more sustainable. So it is interesting that she interjects a, a bit of an opinion here that, well, I think based on the research, you could use these lower carb, higher protein diets as not, this is my term, kind of an induction phase, um, but that's not the way to live. And once again, I think that indicates she knows some of that long-term research that, that low carb diets are the worst. They absolutely check out as the worst when it comes to long-term sustainability. Um, so let's go into this, this second study design set, which is uh, plant-based diets. Oh, actually here, I, I put 2.1 because now in terms of these particular individuals type, type nutrition things, here she listed them out by their, their merits. And so if, if you'll see me go from 2.1, 2.2, 2.3. So this is just looking, for example, of, of plant-based, you know, the, the pros and cons and some of the particular studies she looked at, those are cited over on the right. Uh, then set 2.2 here, she's looking at the, uh, the paleo diet, which I'll explain in a little bit. You guys already know, but I'll just kind of review a couple things. And then the Mediterranean. So I'm not going to go into all those individual little diets, um, but I, I just wanted you to see exactly that, again, as a little bit of a, what I would call a nuanced part of her study she decided to list all of those out individually where she didn't necessarily with the macronutrient design set. Um, yeah, it hurts my feelings a little bit because I would have loved to see those really parsed out. Like here's keto, here's modified keto, here's high protein modified keto, here are some individual studies of those, here's what separates them. She just kind of lumped them together and then she decided to break these out by name. Um, Set number three now are the ones where she talks about, um, you know, here again, she calls it intermittent fasting diets, where she kind of went back to that from her title, but I think it's better to talk about meal timing. And this is where you and I did an entire series on all the different forms of fasting. And she clearly went through in her own 
review some of the same studies. Um, I'm not sure. I may actually, I may scan through some of these. Let me see how much time we have. I may scan through some of the parts I didn't put in here just to give you her thoughts on, on each of these individually. But let me, let me get through to her concluding remarks, and then I'm going to double back to some of that. So I put here another clue because as what I think shows her familiarity with the work, what kind of a researcher she may be, uh, how experienced she may be, this was another good thing to include, which is, you know, here are the limitations of some of, of studies in general. And so this is not a systematic review or meta-analysis. She is not going through every single variable that she's proposing, every single diet, each of the three categories. She's not exhaustively going through each of them. She's just kind of assembling her version of a story, which she, she pads it here by explaining, you know, these are the rules all researchers live by. We know what you know, what a good sample size is. We know, um, you know, inpatient, outpatient studies, here are all the variables. But at the same time, you as a consumer should know, because this is not an exhaustive meta-analysis, she is the one picking which studies to look at. And we all end up creating this kind of suitcase in our lives as either consumers of research or researchers and, and that's why it's an important metric to even know how many times a study is cited. Uh, if, if, for example, let's say there's a classic study, everybody talks about this, the Matador study, everybody in bodybuilding loves to talk about the Matador study. Well, because everybody loves that, then they use that as a benchmark. Eventually, it's going to rack up such an amazing amount of citations that that in itself becomes a point of bias. Like, why does everybody now just accept that as, as so important or carries so much weight? So you know, even the way she selects the things to review is a bias that you, you have to be careful with. So um, so here I'm, I'm kind of kidding. Now you're just showing off because you just rarely see graphics like this in a study or paper. And, and I think this shows that, that, that modernity or post-modernity, maybe a uh, flair of somebody who isn't just, you know, your classic researcher. She's, she's really trying to create an understandable flow of information. So the, the things that she comes down to, and I think my next slide is the conclusion that I'm going to double back on some of these, these points of information in the review that may interest you. Uh, she, she creates this, this flow to say, okay, there, there is this manipulation of macronutrient content. Uh, we have to know what we're going to consume this is high carb, high fat, whatever. And so in her mind, that's a bucket that's profound. And then you have to know how you're going to eat that. What's the, the meal timing type thing. And then you have to look at almost a health value or, or qualitative way of eating. Like, is it vegan? Is it paleo or Mediterranean or, uh, you know, in this, she even talks about religious ways of eating. If you're Jewish or Muslim, you may not eat pork or something. That's a specific thing that would hit this final one. So it wasn't until I got down here that I thought, okay, that's why she, she selected those three broad categories. Now it makes sense. I don't think she explained the reason why initially very well, but now it kind of comes together. Uh, which shows me 
as just a modern day consumer of information, why technology and, and tools like this just make sense. You know, we, we need those, those guide rails even visually just to make sure that we're all seeing the same thing. So let me, let me get into a couple of things that she talks about here now so we can really get into the, the meat of the actual review. And then, as I said, I'll, I'll backpedal a little bit. So the creation of new diets will continue to follow popular trends, of course. However, the belief that these diets promote weight loss has emerged more from personal impressions and reports published in books rather than from rigorously controlled research. Here she states that a little bit better. Um, I, I do completely agree with that, that personal impressions come from those more, more popular places than research. So I think that's why she's trying to be that link between the two, between research and popular consumption. Over the past several decades, efforts have been concentrated on clinical trials to determine the best diet for the treatment of obesity. Unfortunately, the evidence remains inconclusive. That's again, where I say it's kind of, it's kind of conclusive if you, if you're looking at the right stuff. Um, and there are important limitations to some of the trials, which I would agree with, but that's kind of the selling point for even getting more grant money and research. We have to say, oh, we don't know all the answers. We got to keep, keep going. In the short-term diets promote different degrees of success, but in the long-term, the small differences do not instill confidence for prescribing one diet over the other. Again, I disagree with that. And I think that shows a little bit of her inexperience. The number of unanswered questions remains large. Why do some individuals experience successful weight loss, whereas others are more resistant to losing? Um, how do different diets change hormonal secretion, gut microbiome comparison, and gene expression? You guys know all that because you've been here for two years and we've covered so many studies and meta-analyses in that regard. Uh, and yet she concludes that we don't know. And I think there is massive evidence there. How do these changes regulate appetite and energy expenditure in the future for their investigation? These factors such as hormone profiles, gut microbiome composition, genetics, epigenetics, might allow us to indicate the most successful diet for each individual. Now that's what's interesting is that kind of genetic testing that may give some, some credence to why this works better for one person versus another. Our limited knowledge allows us to conclude that there is no optimally effective diet for all individuals to lose weight in the short-term diets based on high protein, low carb composition or fasting might be considered as a jumpstart. However, caution is required due to adverse effects. In the long-term diets such as Mediterranean uh, that prescribe high quality food should be encouraged. Finally, the fundamental point is to adopt a diet that creates a negative energy balance and is based on adequate food quality to promote health. Adherence will predict long-term success. So before I jump back into some of the things that, that you guys may have questions about, I do want to pick apart a couple of those final points. This is where I almost think there's a tip of the hand to the fact that she, she had this conclusion kind of set in her mind, and then she selected the information that would support that or, or not even support it. I don't mean to imply that she was that biased, but you know, you, you find the things that explain it best, you know, cause, cause those things, those studies that have shaped your perspective as a scientist, you hang on to, you reference them, you cite them. And so those are our favorite ones that we carry along with us. And that's how we explain these things to other people. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Uh, but she said that any diet will basically work as long as it has a sufficient energy balance deficit. We know that you got to be eating less than you use. Um, 
adherence is the primary. There are actual studies that show that, that as long as people stick to it, the National Weight Control Registry study, that kind of thing, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like there are some people who diet in ways that are shown to be the least effective, yet because somebody adheres to them, they do fine. Um, and then, of course, she talks about high quality, things like Mediterranean, uh, because we know reducing processed foods, reducing highly palatable foods, if you're going to have some level of fats, have monounsaturated essential fatty acid based fats, uh, you know, there's just so many high quality aspects to that, that it tends to work best. It tends to give people the best health, the best outcomes and sustainability. And, and I kind of lump paleo with that. A lot of people consider paleo more Atkins or low carb, high fat like, but it's really not true. You know, as long as something is grown from the ground, uh, meaning you can still have carbs, uh, you know, that's kind of a whole food, high quality viewpoint of, of paleo. I don't disagree with that at all. It's very similar to paleo, just not quite from the, or very similar to Mediterranean, just not quite from that, that, uh, you know, geological zone with olives, olive oil, that kind of thing. So let, let me do this. Let me um, actually quit sharing the screen so we can see each other a little bit better. And then I'll reference some of these other things uh, as you guys may have some questions. I, there, there are a couple of things that I was going to point out as well, but I'll wait and see if you guys ask them. So any, any thoughts or questions so far? Um, you don't have to even dig into like how research is conducted, but just from the material that she presented. Uh, again, I wanted to use this as a jumping off point for a study because we're going to draw from some of the things we've learned as she discussed in that final conclusion that we don't know enough about how diet affects hormones and so forth. That's just not true. We've done entire series on that and we may review that. Um, she does in the body of her work, go through a little bit more of the different types of, of fasting. But then in her conclusive remarks, she said, eh, that may be okay for like starting, but it's not really sustainable. Again, totally not true. Uh, we know because of glucose disposal, uh, there are all kinds of fasting techniques that can be sustainable and can be amazing. Simply having enough time between meals uh, you, you remember the studies we went through on epigastric contractions and with that biometric testing with, with glucometers, kids and adults, when they learned how to eat, not when they felt empty, more of a barometric type um, of cue when your stomach's empty, but learn to associate hunger with, with blood sugar change. And so therefore, you're, you're eating when you're totally empty and your blood sugar, your blood panel profiles are indicating that, then those people, even without dieting, without counting calories, without doing anything with health, you know, aligned quality judgments and decisions, just by doing that, if you remember, those people lost 30, 34%, I believe it was, um, you know, of their body weight. They, they, they reduced their body mass index that much. Whereas the control group who didn't do that, they didn't lose anything. So again, that's just a total miss on her part that I think should have been expanded. But again, this is our introduction to maybe these three broad categories, 
content process and then you know specific nuance in, in, in terms of food quality. And now in the rest of our series, I'll look at the studies that that do indicate and show and prove some of the things that she just, you know, didn't didn't think are there. So any any thoughts or questions on that kind of stuff? Let toggle over here, see who else is here. Heather jumping in. If nobody else is. Can you hear me? We're on the road. I can. Yep. Okay. Um, so I really like how you did the kind of like appraisal of what you thought about her and why, like the things that you didn't like about her study. And I would love if you continue with that in the future because I do try to find research to justify things that I'm doing, both in my professional life and in my personal life. Um, and sometimes I struggle, like, is this actually a good quality article or not? And so I think as you review those things that you don't, don't like, it will help me to select higher quality research to make some of those decisions. So I really appreciate you through that process. Thank you. Good comment. Yeah. And, and the way I do that is if you agree with me, I consider that a high quality study. I'm, I'm glad you smiled. You got the joke. Um, no, I mean, literally, that's why in my very beginning, I went through my process of even just picking her out. Like, who is this person? What has she done? Where does she work? What's her education specifically? Uh, you know, all that's important stuff. And so you tend to learn. And I, I think this is where you start bi biasing yourself in a good way. Like, I know that Kevin Hall, the director of, nu of nutrition at the NIH, um, you know, he's he's like a god in this in this area because not only does he have a 30 plus year track record, I mean, he knows you're not, you, there's so many limitations to nutrition research, especially just survey research and self-report research. So he spends a considerable amount of his time doing just inpatient research. He'll get the grant money. He'll, he'll do the work that it takes to get enough people in an inpatient ward long-term enough, which is a massive deal to, to just consolidate all of these people and all these test parameters. And so I can look at anything that his name is associated with. I can just say, okay, that's, that's going to be a good study. Other people, I think, you know, just, just some of the cursory things that I did here to look through, but I'll, I'll definitely do that more. I'll, I'll kind of give you my opinion on that. So good, good point. Any other thoughts or questions? As some of you may be unmuting to jump in, I'll show you a couple more things or start getting them ready, but feel free to just, just jump in. She did mention, uh, she did differentiate in here, uh, another type of very low carb, high fat diet known as keto diet, uh, prescribes a minimum of 70% energy from fat and severe restriction of calories. So she noted that as a difference from keto. And then she talked about adverse effects such as constipation, headaches, muscle cramps, weakness, commonly observed, and moreover, uh, lipemia, cardiovascular risks, um, and um, on and on and on. Even the negative effects, just literally for your longevity of the lipid profile, um, atherosclerosis, those kind of things, which are just usually kind of not talked about. So that's why it's an, it's an interesting relationship when I see her working at, uh, at Massachusetts General and Harvard. She's obviously around people with a lot of great knowledge that already have information and 
correct biases like this. Um, she just didn't take the time to explain them or relate them to some of the other variables. Um, if nobody else has anything, another question as mm -hmm. far as like how do you artfully bring it up with people who are already staunch supporters and some of those things that you know aren't the optimal way to do things and, and I guess really just how you approach that topic to make it. Yeah, if uh, you were kind of a little bit there, but if I understand you correctly, you know, let's say there there is somebody who's just an absolute warrior for a diet that's not what I think lines up with research. You know, there are plenty of people like that. Most of them aren't real experts. It, like Gary Taub is a journalist who's totally married to low carb keto. And yet he just doesn't even have the background to assess things like this. He's just bought into it. He bought the marketing and good for him. And if he likes that, that's fine. The thing that I can't really stand in that realm is there are so few people who do it consistently and well. So if I'm going to say, look, a low carb, pure keto diet is necessary, then why are you binging once a week? Even as somebody who touts this, you know, why are you telling me you eat low carb all the time? And then you eat an entire sheet cake, you know, once a month because you can't stand it. And, and people like, um, Dominique Diagostino, who's a keto researcher in Florida, he has even moderated himself to, to look at the most current research. And he's such a genuine, profound researcher that he knows, even though he only likes to eat two meals a day, purely keto. I mean, it's like minimal amounts of protein, 200 grams of fat a day. He started modifying that to get a little more protein. So he may have six or eight ounces of salmon, you know, at night, he may have four or six slices of bacon in the morning. So he's getting some protein along with just the fat. He's also the guy who puts a stick of butter in a cup of coffee two or three times a day. Um, but then as they started doing more and more research, they showed, well, wait a second, as long as you're keeping in this certain level of ketosis, some people can tolerate a little more carb and even, even children, because they do research with epileptics. I mean, that's the, that's the primary medical function of, of keto. And like even these kids with grand mal seizures and so forth, some of them can tolerate more carbs. So why would we stick to some kind of an arbitrary guideline of zero carbs when we know we can start pushing these boundaries and maybe there are some genetic and body type you know, differences for tolerance. And so like, again, that's, that's where I say a good researcher is like they're, they're always in that gray area looking where the boundaries and the gaps and the seams are for better application. Um, but yeah, some of these people who are just kind of defenders and warriors for something that's wrong, I, I got to, like, I would say Dominique is somebody who has been one of those defenders for something that's wrong for a lot of people or most people, but A, he's been specific on who this is for. Maybe it's not for you. Here's what it can do. And even now, after 20 some years of research, he's even starting to broaden out into better acceptance. So you know, there's just a there's just a big difference between people who know the subject matter and people who are just consuming it like you and I and creating opinions. 
Well, and I'm never going to be holier than thou, like an individual wants to follow a certain diet. I ask them their opinions, things like that. But I guess my concern are those people that are those really staunch people who are then disseminating information to others. And these people trust them because they think that they know more than them. And like, I know someone who's a lawyer and she teaches boxing classes and she's a thousand percent keto and she's telling people coming to her boxing classes to do keto. I'm like, someone's going to have an, a major adverse event in it. Like, yeah, I, I don't have any use for people like that. I mean, if, if you don't, if you don't even know that, I mean, you know, I, I'm not a structural engineer, so I don't go walk around telling engineers how to build bridges. I mean, you know, if so, that those are people easy to kind of push to the side, but somebody who claims to know the information and then still is wrong, I'm going to have a fight with them all day long and I'm going to enjoy it. But um, she, she does go over a couple interesting things here that I'm, I'm glad I went back in and started looking. She also picked out like gluten-free just as a hobby horse, perhaps like, Hey, does gluten-free diet, does that have anything? And she, she kind of followed the standard line, which currently is, Eh, we probably overdiagnosed that. Probably not a big deal. Most people who thought they were gluten intolerant are just maybe a little more sensitive. You know, we talked at our Wednesday chat, uh, live support chat, that you know I think we all feel better with more whole food. So if when I replace breads and grains, even the healthiest versions with rice and oats and fruit, I feel a ton better. I'm not gluten intolerant. I just feel better that way. But she even said, but there's just zero evidence that just doing that means you're going to lose more body fat or, or necessarily be healthier. Um, so, you know, this is a pretty short review because like I said, she didn't make it just a, a whole meta-analysis, but she did, she did throw some nuggets in there for people to read and understand. Um, you know, I'm not trying to give an overly verbose opinion on her as a researcher based on one study. I'm just kind of giving you my opinions of, of my reading of it, but go ahead and jump on in there, Stacy. I was just listening to, you know, everything. And I just, in my, from what my experience has been with just about anything to do with uh, prescription habits, like lifestyle diet, all of this stuff, like there's no hard yes or no. Like there's always, you can't just be all in one camp and, and assume with a very broad stroke that it works for everybody because there's going to be someone it doesn't. So whenever someone is all keto, all this, all that, so many flags go up in my mind because there's always a certain percentage of people that that cannot be applied to. It's never absolutes mm -hmm. is always what I've, I've thought. That's why I won't absolutely say no dairy to, to, because mm -hmm. because a lot of people will say, I won't do dairy. Okay, fine. If, if you don't want to, I'm not going to push it on you, but I'm not going to apply that to everybody. Does that make sense? That's totally appropriate. And, and the other publications that, um, or, you know, places of publications that have good reputations within the research community, because it's a very different world 
to be a scientifically based research versus translational research. They don't, it's, it's a kind of a newer concept for our scientists in our academic based or institution is to think about how their research could translate into people. And so, but that traditional research based focus, the Cell and Nature are two publications that if somebody gets something, you know, and they're going to have some decent funding, usually by the NIH, published in one of those publications, those are, the, I mean, that's the kind of publication that gets professors or, or researchers tenure wherever they are, because they're so well respected. Good, really good point. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and once in a while, so there was this almost kind of a joke a, a few years ago where just to kind of take a dig at research, somebody it may have been like a graduate student as kind of a graduate research project decided to create some fake studies and just, you know, throw in a bunch of big words, just totally make up all the findings. It was all sham and actually got, I think, like 40% of the, of the submissions like published. And it was just like a joke. that It was nonsensical. And what that person showed was, can you really trust science? Like, is it a kid? And, and you yeah, know, that's a dangerous question because I think we should. I think we should be able to. Are there mistakes? Is there some corruption somewhere? Are some people just lazy? Absolutely. Um, so whenever something like that happens, I think it makes everybody tighten up a little bit and we realize, okay, wait a second, we better make sure that we've got the right people checking these kind of things. And we are definitely not being lazy. Um, so anyway, I, I agree. It's, it's really important when you know those unbelievably successful, profound institutions like Cell and Nature and so forth. Even I would say the American Journal of, of Clinical Nutrition JAMA, like you're not going to get something through there. The, their peer review process is just next level. So that's, that's a good, good, good um, answer to Heather's question too, is just kind of looking at those, those big sources as some of the better places as comparison. All right, guys, well, we are at the top of the hour, so I will let you go. I appreciate you uh, coming back in after a two month delay. Uh, somewhat, uh, definitely unplanned, but maybe that's not bad. Maybe we need a summer break like this for some things. So uh, stay tuned. If you want to come back in next week or the next couple of weeks, every once in a while, just because of scheduling, I have to announce we can't do this, but I will try and do this at least two or three times, always on a Friday. And we'll always have current announcements in social media and in our app for our clients and coaches. But yeah, we'll continue this study out probably for two to three more weeks just uh, to really put a, put a pin in some of these areas that she brought up as categories. So you guys have a great weekend and I will chat with you again soon.